0: Chapter Eight, Part One of Nana by Emil Zola, translated by Burton Rasco This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eight, Part One. It was in the Rue Veron at Montmartre, in a little apartment on the fourth floor. Nana and Fontaine had invited a few friends to partake of their twelfth night cake. They had only got settled three days before and intended having a housewarming. "'Everything had been done hastily in the first ardor of their honeymoon "'without any fixed intention of their living together. "'On the morrow of her grand brawl, "'when she had so energetically sent the Count and the banker about their business, "'Nana felt that she had got herself into a fine mess. "'She saw her position at a glance. "'The creditors would invade her ante-room, interfere in her love affairs, "'and talk of selling her up if she was not reasonable.' there would be endless quarrels and constant worries just to keep a few sticks of furniture from their grasp she preferred to let all go besides she was sick of her apartment in the boulevard Houseman. it was unbearable with its great gilded rooms in her infatuation for fontan her dream of her girlhood returned to her of the days when she was apprenticed to the artificial flower-maker and longed for nothing more than a pretty bright little room with a wardrobe of violet ebony with a glass door and a bed hung with blue rep. In two days she sold everything that she could safely remove, knick-knacks, jewels, and the like, and disappeared with about ten thousand francs without saying a word to the landlord, a perfect header and not a trace remaining behind. That accomplished, there was no fear of having any men dangling about her petticoats. Fontan was very nice. He didn't say no. He let her do as she liked. In fact, he behaved altogether like a regular chum. He possessed about seven thousand francs and agreed to put them with Nana's ten thousand, although he had the reputation of being miserly. That seemed to them something solid to start housekeeping on. And they commenced thus, each taking what he or she required out of the common fund, furnishing the two rooms in the Rue Veron and sharing everything alike. At the beginning, this kind of life was simply delicious. On twelfth night, Madame Lerat was the first to arrive with little Louis. As Fontaine had not returned, she ventured to express her fears, for she trembled to see her niece renouncing fortune. Oh, aunt, I love him so much, cried Nana, pressing her hands prettily across her breast. These words produced an extraordinary effect on Madame Lerat. Her eyes moistened. That's right, said she in a convincing manner. Love before everything. And she praised the prettiness of the rooms. Nana showed her everything in the bedroom and the dining room and even in the kitchen. Well, they were not large, but they had been newly painted and papered, and the sun shone there so brilliantly. Then Madame Lerat kept the young woman in the bedroom whilst little Louis went and installed himself in the kitchen behind the charwoman in order to see her put a chicken down to roast. If she ventured to make any remarks, it was because Zoé had been to see her only a short time before. Zoé was so devoted to Madame that she bravely remained at the breach. Madame would pay her some time or other. She had no anxiety on that score. And in the downfall of the establishment of the Boulevard Houseman, she coped with the creditors operating a masterly retreat, saving waifs from the wreck and telling everyone that Madame was traveling, but without ever giving an address and for fear, too, of being followed, she denied herself the pleasure of calling on madame. However, that very morning she had hastened to madame Lerat because there was something new in the wind. The day before, several creditors had called, the upholsterer, the coal merchant, the milliner, and they had offered to give time, proposing even to advance a considerable sum of money to madame if madame would return to her apartment and consent to act like a sensible being. The aunt repeated Zoe's very words, There was no doubt some gentleman at the bottom of all that. Never, declared Nana indignantly. Well, they're a dirty lot, those tradespeople. Do they think that I'm going to sell myself just for the sake of seeing their bills paid? Listen to me now. I'd sooner die of hunger than deceive Fontaine. That's just what I answered, said Madame Lerat. I told her that you would only obey the dictates of your heart. Nana, however, was very annoyed to hear that La Mignotte had been sold, and that La Bordette had purchased it for the most ridiculous sum for Caroline Equet. That put her in a rage against the clique. They were nothing better than street-walkers in spite of their grand airs. Ah, yes, by Jove, she was worth more than the whole lot of them. They may laugh, she wound up by saying, money will never get them real happiness. And then, look you, aunt. I no longer know even whether these people are in existence. I am too happy to give them a thought. Just then, Madame Maloir entered, with one of those extraordinary bonnets which she alone had the science of making. It was quite a happy meeting. Madame Maloir explained that greatness intimidated her, but that now she would call occasionally to have a game at Bésic. For the second time, they went over the apartments and in the kitchen in the presence of the charwoman who was basting the chicken, Nana talked of how economical she was going to be, saying that a servant would cost too much and that she intended to do the housework herself, whilst little Louis greedily watched the chicken roasting. But there was a sound of voices. It was Fontan with Bosque and Prudier. The dinner could be served at once, and the soup was already on the table when Nana, for the third time, showed her guests over the rooms. "'Ah, children!' How comfortable you must be here, Bus kept saying, simply to please the friends who stood him a dinner, for in reality the question of the nest as he called it did not affect him in the least. In the bedroom he seemed scarcely able to find sufficient words to express his admiration. Usually he alluded to women as being no better than animals, and the idea that a man could embarrass himself with one of the dirty hussies raised in him the only indignation of which he was capable, in the drunken disdain with which he enveloped the world. "'Ah, the lucky ones,' he continued, blinking his eyes. "'They've done it all on the sly. "'Well, really, you're right. "'It'll be charming, and we'll come and see you. "'I'm blowed if we won't.' But as little Louise just then galloped in, riding on a broom handle, Prullière said with a malicious giggle, "'What, you've already got that big baby?' "'They all thought it very funny.' Madame Lerat and Madame Maloir nearly spit their sides with laughing. Nana, far from feeling offended, smiled in a loving sort of way, saying that unfortunately it was not the case. She would have liked it to have been so for the little one's sake and her own, but perhaps they would have one all the same. Fontan, acting the kind-hearted man, took little Louis in his arms, playing with him and stuttering. ''All the same, you love your papa, don't you?'' ''Call me papa, you little monkey!'' ''Papa, Papa,'' lisped the child. Everyone caressed and fondled him. Busk, taking no real interest in the matter, moved that they should go to dinner. That was the only thing worth living for. Nana asked to be allowed to have little Louis beside her. The meal was a very merry one. Busk, however, did not get on very well on account of the child's proximity to him, and his time was taken up in defending his plate from the youngsters' attacks. Madame Lerat disturbed him also. She became very tender, and whispered in his ear most mysterious things. Stories of gentlemen very well off who still followed her about, and on two separate occasions he was obliged to move his knee, for she kept pushing hers against it, looking at him most lovingly the while. Prullière behaved most shamefully to Madame Maloir, not helping her to a single thing. He was occupied solely with Nana, greatly annoyed at seeing her with Fontaine. The turtle-doves, too, were becoming a nuisance, kissing each other at every moment. In spite of all the usages, they had persisted in sitting side by side. "'Do leave off and eat your dinners,' Bus kept on saying with his mouth full. "'You will have plenty of time to cuddle each other afterwards. Wait till we have gone.' But Nana could not restrain herself. She was all wrapped up in her love, as rosy as a virgin— and full of endearing smiles and glances. With her eyes fixed on Fontaine, she called him all the pretty name she could think of. Ducky, Darling, Cherub, and whenever he handed her anything, the water or the salt, she leant forward and kissed him on whatever part of his head her lips encountered, on his eyes, his nose, or his ears. Then, if the other scolded her, she retired again to her seat with most wary tactics, and the humility and suppleness of a cat that had just been whipped though at the same time slyly taking hold of his hand beneath the table to kiss it again at the first opportunity. She must touch some part of him. Fontaine assumed an important air and condescendingly allowed himself to be adored. His big nose quivered with a sensual joy. His goatish physiognomy, his ugliness suggestive of some ridiculous monster seemed to expand beneath the devout adoration of that superb girl so plump and white. "'Occasionally he would return her kiss, like a man who, though having the best of it, still wishes to act nicely. "'Look here, you two, you are really unbearable!' exclaimed Fruillière at length. "'Get out of there, you!' "'And he turned Fontan out of his seat, changing the plates and glasses, and took the place beside Nana. "'This called forth no end of exclamations, outbursts of applause, and some rather indecent remarks.' Fontaine pretended to be in despair and assumed his comical look of Vulcan crying for Venus. Frullière at once made himself very attentive, but Nana, whose foot he tried to touch under the table gave him a kick to force him to leave off. No, she would certainly not have anything to do with him. The month before she had been slightly smitten with his handsome head, but now she detested him. If he pinched her again when pretending to pick up his napkin, she would throw her glass in his face. But everything went off well. They naturally talked of the variety theatre. That rogue Bordenaire would never die, it seemed. His foul diseases had broken out again, and he was in such a state that one could scarcely touch him with a pair of tongs. The day before he had done nothing but blackguard Simon all through the rehearsal. Nobody would weep for him over much. Nana said that if he dared to offer her another part she would send him to the devil— Besides, she didn't think she would go up on the stage again. She preferred being at home to being at the theatre. Fontan, who was not in the new piece, nor yet in the one they were rehearsing, also exaggerated the sweets of liberty, and the felicity of spending his evenings with his little darling, his legs stretched out before the fire. And the others called them lucky creatures, pretending to envy their happiness. They had cut the Twelfth Night Cake. The bean had fallen to Madame Lerat, who at once put it in bust glass. Then they all shouted, "'The king drinks! The king drinks!' Nana took advantage of this outburst of gaiety to put her arms around Fontaine's neck and kiss him and whisper in his ear. But Prulière, with the vexed laugh of a handsome fellow who finds his good looks are not appreciated, cried out that it was not fair. Little Louis had been put to sleep on two chairs, and the party did not break up till one in the morning, the guests calling out good-night as they descended the stairs. And for three weeks the life of the two lovers was sweet indeed. Nana thought herself back at the commencement of her career, when her first silk dress had caused her so much pleasure. She went out but little, affecting solicitude and simplicity, One morning early, when going to buy some fish at the Rochefoucauld market, she was astonished to find herself face to face with Francis, the hairdresser. He was dressed with his habitual correctness, fine, clean linen, and an irreproachable overcoat, and she was ashamed at being seen by him in the street in a dirty morning gown, her hair all in disorder and with a pair of old shoes upon her feet. But he had the tact to be even more exaggerated in his politeness. He did not ask a question, but pretended to think that Madame had been abroad. Ah, Madame had broken a great many hearts by going away. It was a loss for all the world. The young woman, however, seized with a curiosity which ended by dispelling her first embarrassment, could not refrain from questioning him. As the crowd kept jostling against them, she drew him into a doorway, and stood in front of him with her little basket in her hand. What was being said about her little escapade? Well, really... THE LADIES AT WHOSE HOUSES HE CALLED SAID THIS AND THAT. IN SHORT, IT HAD CAUSED QUITE A COMMOTION AND WAS UNDOUBTEDLY A TREMENDOUS SUCCESS. AND STEINER? Monsieur STEINER HAD FALLEN VERY LOW. HE WOULD END BADLY UNLESS HE SUCCEEDED IN SOME FRESH SPECULATION. AND DAGENET? OH, HE WAS DOING VERY WELL. Monsieur DAGENET WAS SETTLING DOWN. Nana, excited by her reminiscences, was on the point of asking some fresh question, but she felt a restraint in uttering Biffa's name. Then Francis smilingly alluded to him. As for the Count, it was shocking to see him. He had suffered so much after Madame's departure. He looked like the ghost of some unburied corpse as he wandered about the various places that Madame used to frequent. However, Monsieur Mignon, having come across him, had taken him home, This news made Nana laugh, but in a constrained manner. Ah, so he's with Rose now, said she. Well, you know, Francis, I don't care a hang. The old hypocrite. He's got into such habits, he can't even abstain from them for a few days. And he swore that he would never have anything to do with any woman after me. Though outwardly calm, she was in reality greatly enraged. It's my leavings, she resumed. Rose has treated herself to a queer fish, Oh, I see it all. She wanted to have her revenge for my carrying off that old beast Steiner from her. She's done a smart thing in taking a man into her house that I turned out of mine. Monsieur Mignon tells a different story, said the hairdresser. According to him, it was the Count who turned you out. Yes, and in a rather unpleasant way, too, with a kick behind. On hearing this, Nana became deadly pale. A what? exclaimed she. A kick behind. Well, that's too much, that is. Why, my boy, it was I who chucked him downstairs the cuckold, for he is a cuckold, as I dare say you know. His countess has no end of lovers, even that filthy faucherie. And that mignon who walks the streets for his monkey-faced wife, whom no one will touch because she's so skinny. What a beastly world! What a beastly world! She was choking. She stopped to take breath. Ah, so they say that. Well, my little Francis, I'll just go and seek them out. Shall we go together at once? Yes, I'll go, and we'll see if they'll have the cheek to talk then about kicks behind. Kicks? Why, I have never submitted to be kicked by anyone. And I'll never be beaten either. Because, look you, I'd killed the man who laid a finger on me. But she gradually quieted down. After all, they could say what they liked. She thought no more of them than of the mud on her shoes. It would defile her to pay the least attention to such people. She had her conscience, and that was enough for her. And Francis became more familiar, seeing her expose her inmost feelings as she stood there in her dirty old gown and he ventured to give her some advice. She was foolish to sacrifice everything simply for an infatuation. Infatuation spoilt life. She listened to him, holding down her head, whilst he spoke in a sad tone of voice, like a connoisseur who grieved to see so lovely a girl throw herself away in such a manner. "'That's my business,' she ended by saying. "'But thanks all the same, old fellow.' She squeezed his hand, which was always a trifle greasy, in spite of his perfect get-up. Then she left him and went to buy her fish. During the day the story of the kick behind occupied her a great deal— She even spoke of it to Fontan, again affecting the style of a strong-minded woman who would not submit to an insult from anyone. Fontan, like the superior being he was, declared that all those grand gentlemen were muffs, and that they should despise them. And from that moment, Nana was filled with a real disdain. It happened that evening that they went to the Boeuf Theatre to see a little woman whom Fontan knew make her first appearance in a part of Ten Lines, it was nearly one o'clock in the morning when they at last got back to Montmartre on foot. In the rue de la Chaussée Dantin, they had stopped to buy a cake, a mocha, and they ate it in bed because the night was cold and it was not worth while lighting a fire. Sitting up in bed, side by side, with the clothes well over them, and the pillows piled up high behind, they talked of the little woman as they supped. Nana thought her ugly and quite without go. Fontan, who slept on the outside of the bed, passed the slices of cake which stood on the night table between a box of matches and the candle, but they ended by quarreling. "'Oh, is it possible to talk so?' cried Nana. "'Her eyes are like gimlet holes, and her hair is the color of tow. "'Shut up,' replied Fontan. "'She has beautiful hair, and her eyes are full of fire. "'It's funny that you women always pull each other to pieces.' He seemed greatly annoyed." There, that's enough, he said at length in a rough tone of voice. You know I don't like wrangling. We'll go to sleep or there'll be a row. And he blew out the candle. Nana was furious and continued talking. She was not going to be spoken to like that. She was in the habit of being respected. As he no longer answered, she was obliged to leave off. But she could not go to sleep. She kept turning over and turning over. "'Damn it all, have you finished moving about?' he asked, suddenly jumping up in a sitting posture. "'It's not my fault if there are crumbs in the bed,' said she sharply. "'And there were indeed crumbs in the bed. "'She even felt them under her legs. "'They were all about her. "'The smallest crumb irritated her and made her scratch herself till her flesh bled. "'Besides, when one eats anything in bed, one should always shake the clothes afterwards.' "'Fontan, in a towering rage, lit the candle.' They both got out, and in their night dresses and with their feet bare, they uncovered the bed and swept the crumbs away with their hands. He, who was shivering all the time, hastily got back into bed, and told her to go to the devil because she asked him to wipe his feet. Then she returned to her place. But she had scarcely lain down again before she recommenced her dance. There were still some crumbs left. "'Of course, I knew it,' said she. "'You brought them back again on your feet.' I can't go to sleep like this, I tell you I can't. And she rose in bed as though about to step over him. Then, unable to stand it any longer and wishing to go to sleep, Fontan thrust out his arm and slapped her. The blow was given with such force that Nana at once found herself lying down in bed again with her head on the pillow. She lay still, as though stunned. Oh, said she simply, sighing like a child. He threatened her with another smack if she moved again. Then, blowing out the candle, he turned on his back and soon began to snore. She buried her face in her pillow to smother her sobs. It was cowardly to take advantage of her inferior strength, but she was dreadfully frightened. Fontan's usually funny face had looked so terrible, and her anger disappeared as though the smack had appeased it. She respected him. She squeezed up against the wall to leave him all the room. With her cheek tingling, her eyes full of tears, she even ended by falling asleep in such a delicious dejection of spirits, in such a wearied state of submission, that she no longer felt the crumbs. In the morning when she awoke, she had her arms round Fontan holding him very tightly. He would never do it again, would he now? She loved him too much. Still, it was even nice to be beaten by him, From that night their life entirely changed. For a yes or a no, Fontaine struck her. She, getting used to it, submitted. Occasionally she cried out or menaced him, but he forced her against the wall and talked of strangling her and that made her yield. More frequently she fell onto a chair and sobbed for five minutes. Then she forgot all about it, becoming very gay and singing and laughing and skipping about the room. THE WORST WAS THAT Fontaine NOW DISAPPEARED ALL DAY AND NEVER CAME HOME BEFORE MIDNIGHT. HE FREQUENTED THE CAFÉS WHERE HE WAS LIKELY TO MEET HIS FRIENDS. NANA TREMBLINGLY AND CARESSINGLY SUBMITTED TO EVERYTHING, NOT DARING TO UTTER A REPROACH FOR FEAR OF NEVER SEEING HIM AGAIN. BUT SOME DAYS, WHEN SHE HAD NEITHER MADAME Maloire NOR HER AUNT WITH LITTLE LOUIS TO HELP HER PASS AWAY THE TIME, SHE FELT VERY WRETCHED INDEED. Therefore, one Sunday when she had gone to the Rochefoucault market to purchase some pigeons, she was delighted to come across Satin who was buying a bunch of radishes. Ever since the evening when the prince had partaken of Fontain Champagne, they had lost sight of each other. What? It's you? You live in this neighborhood? asked Satin, amazed at seeing her out of doors in her slippers at that time of day. Ah, my poor girl, you must be down in your luck. Nana frowned at her to make her leave off, because there were some other women there, women in dressing-gowns, and who did not appear to have any underclothes on, whose hair was all disheveled and whose faces were smothered with powder. Every morning all the loose women of the neighborhood, having scarcely got rid of the men picked up the night before, came to make their purchases, dragging their old shoes over the pavement, their eyes heavy with want of sleep, and in the bad temper caused by the fatigue of a night of dissipation, Down every street leading to the market they could be seen coming, all looking very pale, some quite young girls most seductive in appearance, others regular old hags, both fat and flabby, not minding in the least to be seen thus outside their business hours, whilst the passers-by might turn to look at them without even one of them deigning to smile, for they were all in too much of a hurry for that, and went about their errands with the disdainful airs of thrifty women who have no dealings with men whatever. Just as Satin was paying for her bunch of radishes, a young man, some clerk who was late, called to her as he passed. "'Good morning, darling.' She at once drew herself up with the dignity of an offended queen, saying, "'What's the matter with that pig there?' Then she thought she knew him. Three days before, as she was returning from the boulevards about midnight, she had spoken to him for about half an hour at the corner of the Rue La Bruyere before he would make up his mind. But the recollection only annoyed her the more." What fools men are to call out such things in the daytime, she resumed. When one goes out on one's private business, one ought to be respected. Nana had at length selected her pigeons, though she had doubts as to their freshness. Then Satin wanted to show her where she lived. It was close by in the Rue Rochefoucauld. And as soon as they were alone together, Nana related the story of her love for Fontan. When she reached her door, the little one stood with her radishes under her arm, interested by the final particulars given by the other, who was lying in her turn, saying that she had sent Count Mipha out of her place with a kick behind. "'Oh, that was grand, very grand,' observed Satin. "'A kick behind? Oh, splendid! And he didn't dare say a word, did he? "'Men are such cowards! I should have liked to have been there to have seen his mug. "'My dear, you were right. Drat their money!' I, when I've a fancy, I'd die for it. "'Well, you'll come and see me, won't you? "'The door on the left. "'Knock three times, for there are always a lot of people who come to bother me.' "'After that day, whenever Nana felt dull, she went to see Satin. "'She was always certain of finding her in, "'for the little one never went out before six in the evening. "'Satin had two rooms which a chemist had furnished for her "'so that she should be safe from the police.' But in less than thirteen months she had broken the furniture, destroyed the seats of the chairs, soiled the curtains, and got everything into such a state of dirt and disorder that the rooms looked as though they were occupied by a troop of mad tabbies. The mornings when she herself, quite disgusted, started cleaning, legs of chairs and shreds of curtains remained in her hands, so hard was the battle she had to fight with the filth. On those days everything looked dirtier still and it was impossible to enter the rooms, for all manner of things were piled up in the doorways. At length, she ended by neglecting her home altogether. In the lamplight, the wardrobe with its mirror, the clock, and what remained of the curtains looked sufficiently well to satisfy the men who came to see her. Besides, for six months past, her landlord had been threatening to turn her out, so why should she trouble herself by looking after the place? And for him, perhaps, not if she knew it, and whenever she got up in a bad temper she shouted out, Gee up, gee up, giving formidable kicks on the sides of the wardrobe and the chest of drawers which were cracking all over. Nana nearly always found her in bed. Even the days when Satin went out on her errands, she was always so tired on her return that she would fall asleep again on the edge of the bed. During the daytime she merely dragged herself about, dozing on the chairs and never rousing from this state of languor till the evening when the gas lamps were lit. And Nana always felt very comfortable there, sitting doing nothing in the midst of the untidy bed, of the basins full of dirty water placed on the floor, and of the muddy skirts cast off the night before, soiling the chairs on which they had been carelessly thrown. She would cackle and talk of her private affairs without ceasing, whilst Satin, in her shift and sprawling on the bed with her feet in the air, listened to her and smoked cigarettes. Sometimes on the afternoons when they had troubles which they wanted to forget, as they said, they treated each other to absinthe. Then, without going downstairs or even putting on a petticoat, Satin would call over the balusters for what she wanted to the concierge's little girl, a youngster of ten, who looked at the lady's naked legs when she brought up the absinthe in a glass. All the conversation of the two women had reference to men's abominable ways. Nana was quite unendurable with her fontan. She could not utter ten words without alluding to something he had said or done. But Satin good-naturedly listened to these eternal stories of watchings at the window, of quarrels about a burned stew, and of reconciliations in bed after hours of sulking. Through a hankering always to talk about him, Nana ended by recounting all the blows that he gave her. Only the previous week he had blackened her eye, and the evening before, not being able to find his slippers, he had given her a blow which had sent her reeling against the night-table. And the other expressed no surprise, quietly puffing her cigarette, and only interrupting Nana to say that for her part she always ducked, with the result of sending the gentleman and his blow to the other end of the room. They both became deeply interested in these stories of beatings, feeling happy and diverted by the constant repetition of the same stupid incidents, and yielding over again to the warm and sluggish lassitude occasioned by the infamous thrashings of which they spoke. It was the enjoyment of discussing Fontan's blows, of always talking about him, even to describing his way of taking off his boots that brought Nana there every day, the more especially as Satin invariably sympathized with her. She told in return of things that happened to her which were even worse, of a pastry cook who would leave her on the ground for dead, and whom all the same she loved more than ever. Then came the days when Nana cried, and declared that she could not put up with it any longer. Satin accompanied her to her door, and waited an hour in the street to see if Fontan didn't murder her, and on the morrow, the two women enjoyed the afternoon discussing the reconciliation, preferring, however, though without saying so, the days when there was a good row on because that impassioned them the more. They became inseparable. Yet Satin never went to Nana's, Fontan having declared that he would not have any strumpets in his place. They would walk out together, and it was thus that one day Satin took her to call on a woman who turned out to be the Madame Robert whom Nana often thought about with a certain respect ever since she had declined to come to her supper. Madame Robert lived in the Rue Monnier, one of the new and quiet streets near the Place de l'Europe, not containing a single shop, and the handsome houses of which, with their tiny suites of apartments, are entirely occupied by ladies. It was five o'clock. Down the silent thoroughfare amidst the aristocratic quietude of the tall white houses, the brooms of stock-joppers and merchants awaited, whilst men hurried along the foot-pavements, raising their eyes to the windows where women in dressing-gowns seemed to be watching for them. Nana at first would not go upstairs, saying stiffly that she was not acquainted with the lady, but sat and insisted. One could always take a friend with one. She was merely paying a visit of politeness. Madame Robert, whom she had met the day before in a restaurant, had behaved very nicely to her, and had made her promise to come and see her. So Nana at length gave in. Upstairs, a little servant half asleep said that her mistress was out. However, she ushered them into the drawing-room and left them there. "'By Jove, how handsome!' murmured Satin. It was furnished in the severe style of the middle classes, and the hangings were of somber hue, whilst the whole had appearance of gentility, usually to be seen in the surroundings of the Parisian shopkeeper who has retired on a fortune. Nana, drawing her own conclusions from all this, began to make a few broad remarks. But Satin got angry and answered for Madame Robert's virtue. She was always to be met in company with grave elderly gentlemen with whom she walked arm in arm, Just now she had a retired chocolate manufacturer who was of a most serious turn of mind. He was so delighted with the genteel appearance of the establishment that whenever he visited there, he always made the servant announce him and addressed Madame Robert as his child. But look, that's she, said Satin, pointing to a photograph placed in front of the clock. Nana studied the portrait for a minute. It represented a very dark woman with a long face and lips smiling discreetly. One would at once have said, a lady of fashion, but more reserved. "'It's funny,' murmured she at length. "'I've certainly seen that face somewhere, where I no longer recollect. But it could not have been in a respectable place.' "'Oh, no, it was decidedly not in a respectable place,' and she added, turning towards her friend. "'So she made you promise to come and see her. What does she want with you?' "'What does she want with me?' "'Why?' to have a chat, no doubt, to be a little while together, it's mere politeness. Nana looked at Satin straight in the eyes, then she slightly smacked her tongue. Well, it didn't matter to her. However, as the lady was a long time in coming, she declared that she would not wait any further, and they both went away. On the morrow, Fontan having told Nana that he would not be home to dinner, she started off early to find Satin in order to treat her to a feast at a restaurant. The selection of the restaurant was a weighty affair. Satin suggested various places, all of which Nana thought abominable. At last she induced her to try Lars. It was an ordinary in the Rue des Martyrs, where the charge for dinner was three francs a head. Tired of waiting until the time when it began and not knowing how to occupy themselves in the street, they went to Lars fully twenty minutes too soon. The three rooms were still empty. They seated themselves at a table in the room where Laure fer sat throned behind a high counter. Laure was a person about fifty years old, of a most massive figure, which was kept in shape by the aid of tightly laced stays and waistbands. A number of women quickly began to arrive, and standing on tiptoe, and leaning over the piles of little salvers filled with lumps of sugar, they kissed Laure on the mouth with tender familiarity whilst the fat monster, with moist eyes, tried to divide her attention so as not to occasion any jealousies. The maid who waited on the guests, unlike her mistress, was tall and scraggy, with an emaciated look about her, and black eyelids beneath which her eyes were lighted up with a sombre fire. The three rooms rapidly filled. There were about a hundred customers, disseminated according to the hazard of the tables most of them about forty years old enormous in size overloaded with flesh and with faces bloated by vice and mingling with this assemblage of turgid breasts and stomachs were a few slim pretty girls looking still ingenuous in spite of their brazen gestures Beginners, picked up at low-dancing establishments and brought by some of the customers to Lolles, where the multitude of big flabby women, thrown quite into a flutter by the sight of their youth, jostled one another and formed a court around them like a crowd of anxious old boys while treating them to all sorts of dainties. As for the men, they were few in number, ten or fifteen at the most, and they all looked very humble amidst the overwhelming shoal of skirts, with the exception of four fellows who had merely come to see the show and who joked about it very much at their ease. ''It's very good their stew, isn't it?'' asked Satin. Nana nodded her head with an air of satisfaction. It was a solid dinner, such as used to be given in country hotels. Vol-au-vent, stewed fowl and rice, haricot beans with gravy and iced vanilla cream. The ladies went in especially for the stewed fowl and rice, almost bursting in their stays and slowly wiping their lips. At first, Nana was afraid of meeting some of her old acquaintances who might have asked her stupid questions. But she grew more easy as she noticed no one she knew amongst that very mixed crowd, in which faded dresses and weather-beaten bonnets were to be seen side by side with the most elegant costumes in the fraternity of the same corruption. For a minute she was interested in a young man with short curly hair and an impudent-looking face, who kept a whole table of women bursting with fat and bent on satisfying his every whim in a breathless state of anxiety. But on the young man laughing his breasts rose, "'Why, it's a woman!' Nanna exclaimed with a smothered cry. Satin, who was stuffing herself with fowl, raised her head and then whispered, "'Ah, yes, I know her. She's quite the go. They're all after her.' Nana pouted with disgust. She couldn't understand that. Yet she said in her reasonable sort of way that it was no use arguing about tastes and colors, for one never knew what one might like some day, and she ate her ice cream with a philosophical air.' perfectly aware of the sensation satin was causing among the neighboring tables with her big blue virgin-like eyes. She more especially noticed a large fair haired person seated near her who was making herself most amiable. She gave such glances and edged up so close that Nana was on the point of interfering. But just at that moment a woman entered the room who caused her a great surprise. She had recognized Madame Robert. The latter, with her pretty look of a little brown mouse, nodded familiarly to the tall, scraggy maid, and then went and leaned against Laura's counter, and they both kissed each other a long time. Nana thought this caress rather peculiar on the part of so ladylike a woman, the more especially as Madame Robert no longer had her modest look but the contrary. She glanced about the room as she conversed in a low tone of voice. Laura had just sat down again. "'once more throning herself with the majesty of an old idol of vice, "'with face worn and polished by the kisses of the faithful. "'And from above the plates of viande, "'she reigned over her collection of big bloated women, "'bulkier than even the most enormous of them, "'and enjoying the fortune that had rewarded forty years of labor. "'Madame Robert, however, had caught sight of satin, So, leaving La, she hastened to her and was most amiable, saying she regretted extremely having been out on the previous day, and as Satin, quite charmed, insisted on making room for her at the table, she declared that she had dined. She had merely come to look about. As she talked, standing up behind her new friend, she leant on her shoulders, and, in a smiling, wheedling way, kept saying, When shall I see you? Do you happen to be free? Nana, unfortunately, was unable to hear more. The conversation annoyed her and she was burning to give that respectable woman a bit of her mind, but the sight of a troop of people just arrived paralyzed her. It consisted of some very stylish women in gorgeous dresses and diamonds. Displaying their hundreds of francs worth of precious stones on their persons, and seized with an inclination to visit the old haunt, they had come in a party to Lars whom they treated most familiarly to dine there at three francs a head, amidst the jealous astonishment of the other poor, mud-bedabbled women. When they entered with loud voices and clear ringing laughter bringing, as it were, a ray of sunshine from the outside, Nana quickly turned her head, greatly annoyed at seeing Lucy Stewart and Maria Blonde amongst them. For close upon five minutes during the whole time these ladies were conversing with Laure, before passing into the next room, she kept her face bent down, pretending to be very busy in rolling some bread crumbs over the cloth. Then, when she was at length able to turn round, she was aghast at seeing that the chair next to her was empty. Satin had disappeared. Whatever has become of her? she unconsciously exclaimed aloud. The big fair-haired woman who had been so attentive to Satin laughed ill-humouredly, and as Nana, irritated by the laugh, gave her a menacing look, she said softly, in a drawling tone of voice, It's certainly not I who've run away with her. It's the other one. And Nana, understanding that she would only get laughed at, held her tongue. She even remained seated a short time longer, not wishing to show her annoyance. From the other room she could hear the voice of Lucy Stewart, who was standing treat to a whole table of girls who had come from the dancing places of Montmartre and La Chapelle it was very warm. The maid was removing piles of dirty plates, smelling strongly of the stewed fowl and rice, whilst the four gentlemen had ended by standing some strong wine to several different parties of women, in hope of making them drunk and of hearing something smutty. What exasperated Nana was having to pay for Satin's dinner. She was a nice hussy, to allow herself to be well stuffed and then to go off with the first who asked her, without even saying thank you, It was, it is true, only three francs, but she thought it hard all the same. It was such a dirty trick to play. She paid, however, banging her six francs down before Law, whom she despised then more than the mud in the gutter. In the rue des Martyrs, Nana's rancor increased. She certainly wouldn't go and run after Satin. She wouldn't go near such a vile creature. But all the same, her evening was spoilt, and she returned slowly towards Montmartre, feeling frightfully enraged with Madame Robert. That one certainly had a famous cheek to pretend she was a respectable woman. She was respectable enough for a dustbin. Now she recollected perfectly of having seen her at the Butterfly, a foul-dancing place in the rue des Poissonniers where she used to sell herself for thirty sous and she got hold of government officials by her modest ways, and she refused suppers, to which she had been honored by an invitation just to pretend that she was a virtuous person. Ah, she should have some virtue given her. It was always such prudes as she who got hold of the most shocking diseases in ignoble holes that no one else knew of. However, Nana, while thinking of all these things, had at length arrived home in the Rue Véron. She was amazed to see a light in the windows, Fontan, having been left directly after dinner by the friend who had invited him, had come home in a very bad humor. He listened in a cold way to the explanation she hastened to give in her fear of being knocked about and her bewilderment at seeing him there when she had not expected him before one in the morning. She lied, for though she admitted spending six francs, she said she had been with Madame Malois. He remained wrapped in his dignity and handed her a letter which he had coolly opened although addressed to her. It was a letter from Georges, who was still kept at Les Fondette and who gave vent to his feelings every week in several pages of the most impassioned language. Nana was delighted when anyone wrote to her, especially letters full of vows of love. She read them to everyone. Fontaine was acquainted with Georges' style and appreciated it. But that night she so feared a row that she affected the greatest indifference. She glanced through the letter in a sulky sort of way and then threw it on one side. Fontan was beating the tattoo on a window-pane, not wanting to go to bed so early, and not knowing what to do to while away the evening. Suddenly he turned round. Suppose we write an answer to the youngster at once, said he. It was usually he who wrote. He had a much finer style. And then he was pleased when Nana, full of admiration for his letter, which he would read out loud, would kiss him and exclaim that only he could find such pretty things to say. And all that ended by exciting them, and they adored each other. As you like, she replied. I will make some tea. We can go to bed afterwards. Then Fontan made himself comfortable at the table with a great display of pen, ink, and paper. He rounded his arms and thrust out his chin. My heart, he began reading out loud. End of Chapter 8 Part 1